Welcome to the Second Renaissance podcast, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. I'm Anders Sumanilson, global futurist, author, and the co-creator of the Adobe CQ, the IQ test for your creative leadership, and your host for the Second Renaissance. All right. Franz Johansson, great to have you on the show, uh, the second renaissance here. The author, of course, of the Medici effect. So I think it's a perfect fit. Thank you very much, Sanders. Looking forward to our combo. I think the first thing that, that strikes me sitting down with you here in the, in the virtual world after doing, you know, lunches and catching up and the likes of uh, North Carolina and down, I think we said Wall Street a few years ago and doing some common projects with the likes of Eli Lilly, et cetera, is um, I'm Swedish Australian and you're Swedish American. And I think for all the listeners today, they're sort of tuning into this very, very different uh, Swedish English accents. <laughs> Where does yours come from? Tell me, because it's kind of relevant to what we're about to talk about. My accent or what is... Uh, what yeah, is your back, accent, because it, it is this kind of crazy international mix. And it, yeah, and we'll, it is. We'll, we'll it build is upon a, this today. Uh, you know, I, it comes from the intersection I grew up in. My 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 dad is Swedish, my mom's American from uh, Hickory, North Carolina, and um, and so Southern. She's black and Cherokee. So you have like this mix of cultures, of countries, um, of uh, of nations, and um, and I think that's kind of where it's that's where it's born out of. Yeah, because you you do talk in this in this book, and I, I must you know I must just reflect for a moment. Um, I mean, I read the Medici effect, I think, in the late twenty noughties, and um, yeah. and I've re-listened to it uh, in preparation for for our dialogue here today. And I was like, wow, you were really kind of like ahead of your time in some ways, um, given lockdowns. You know, there's big questions mark question marks about you know how creative can virtual teams mm -hmm. be and of course we've all moved into that era of remote work um but this idea of the intersection is a really interesting one because you talk about how diverse people essentially and i'm going to let you actually you know do your own paraphrasing in a minute um that the diversity of people, I mean, of course, in an age of Black Lives Matter and diversity being on the forefront of people's minds, Everywhere, how that's yeah. absolutely crucial to innovation. Do you want to just cover that idea of, of the intersection and why it's crucial today? Sure. I mean, so at its at the heart of it, in the in 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 my book, I articulated this idea that you have a you have the best shot at innovating at the intersection of different cultures. Um, uh, industries, disciplines, perspectives, backgrounds. And so, uh, so at its core, the Meditative effect is really about the fact that diversity drives innovation, why that is, what you can do about it, and so on. Now, today, this is a much more widely accepted idea, but when it came out, it was, it was, it really became a game changer. <clears throat> it was, it became a book that that drove this idea narrative uh, across across the world. Frankly, it was translated into 21 languages at this point. So it really has had that type of impact in driving discussion and, and, and also driving in driving an understanding of how to actually innovate. So that's the first thing to know about what that book did. Now, over the years, uh, it's become um, when I started in this, I think a lot of conversation was about cross-functional diversity, cross-industry diversity, and so on, still very relevant. But what has been really amping up during this time has been diversity of race and gender, uh, of, of ethnicity, of culture, uh, of, of sexual orientation, and so on. These other dimensions of diversity, in particular, obviously, in the past year, uh, race and ethnicity has just escalated dramatically globally. Uh, but you, you've seen the same sort of discussion there on gender and so on. And it's really quite remarkable in the book. It really highlights that the, the dynamic is the same, whether you're talking about gender, race, function, industry, and so on. In our company, uh, we, we think of four dimensions of diversity, actually, that are, that, we, that are operational, like who you are, what you do, how you do it, and with whom you do it. So all of these things really matter in this context. And here's the thing. The crazy thing um, 
if you look at the trend lines, not just in the United States, but globally, the trend line for talking about and dealing and wanting to know and understanding innovation is going like this. Well, the same is true for diversity and equity inclusion, like this. And it's not, it's not a coincidence. These concepts are linked. So diversity and inclusion drives innovation. Innovation is more important than ever. And this framing has really opened up opportunities for companies and for teams to think about innovation differently. How can I increase diversity in my team? How can I be more inclusive about the perspectives that are on the team? Because that's the core of innovation. I mean, it's interesting on a, even on a kind of a meta level, right? You're actually, you know, describing an intersection here of of different fields of innovation and right. you know diversity of inclusion. Right. So you find it's, yourself perfectly at the intersection yourself. I, 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 I know it's like uh, I don't know, it's like an inception or something. Like, yeah. like <laughs> yes. multiple layers. That's right. We're spinning it as 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 yeah. we speak. <laughs> so. I mean, just just for our viewers and our listeners to to get a bit of a sense of you know casting our minds back from you know the present you know pandemic, and I think the byline of your book is you know what elephants and epidemics can teach yeah, us about. I know, right? <laughs> innovation, right? So yeah. go, going back to the time of you know the Black Plague and then the you know the emergence, and many people have said that the Black Plague actually kind of laid the the foundations of of the Florentine epicenter of the Renaissance and the flourishing of, of human That's creativity right. and thought. And of course, there was a family there called the Medicis, or as I would say in Swedish or Australian, Medicis. Yes. Um, <laughs> why, why, is the, why is the book called that? And what have the Medicis got to do with, with innovation today? Yeah. So, um, so basically, this idea of, of bringing together differences and, and people from, from different, different uh, uh, backgrounds and different disciplines. Like if you if you look at what happened about 500 years ago in Florence, uh, you, you really kind of had this effect take place there. The Medici's, uh, the Medici family was a family that ruled the city of Florence. It was the most powerful family, not just in Florence, but in, in all of Europe at that time. And they were able to attract people to Florence from lots of different disciplines, lots of different uh, uh, countries and cultures. Uh, you had architects, sculptors, philosophers, painters, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, all these sort of funded uh, or, uh, by the Medicis or, 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 or attracted to Florence uh, due to their work. Uh, they came from all over Europe, even as far away from China. And they, they, they came to Florence where they were able to break down the boundaries between the different disciplines, between the different cultures, and ignite what became one of the most creative eras in Europe at the time, the Renaissance. So to me, the question wasn't you know, necessarily about the Medicis. It was about the effect that they created. It's like, that's why I call the Medici effect. How do we create that effect in our own, own teams, in our own organization, our own lives? How do we, how do we able to bring together this difference to, to, to ignite new ideas? And, and you know, I, I opened the book with, it's still one of my favorite examples, obviously it's old at this point, um, but you have it, you know, an architect that is, looking to design a building in Harare, uh, in the capital of Zimbabwe. And, and he has a design constraint, which is that this building can't contain any air conditioning, you know, which is, you know, it can be challenging because it can get, well, you can get hot in Zimbabwe. So, but he does this, right, by combining his field of expertise, architecture, with the field of termite ecology. Termites build these mounds on the African savanna, and they need to sort of keep an exact 87 degrees Fahrenheit, 30, 31 degrees Celsius everywhere on the planet, except for the United States. And they're, and they're able to do that by growing fungi that helps them digest wood. And they open closing vents through this mound by, uh, and through that sort of redirect air breezes and, and, and controlling the temperature exactly. So he, he looked at that design. I can use the same design for my building. And his building is one of the largest buildings in Harare, uses 90% less energy than any other building around it. Like that's, that's a powerful example of this intersection. I'm borrowing ideas from, in this case, nature and applying it. Well, the same holds true uh, about really any type of dimension of diversity. And that's what's so cool about it. 
Yeah, cool. And and what do you see? I mean, so taking that concept of, of the Renaissance and 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 the Medici's and the, the intersection and, and and different modalities of, of thought. Um, what are some other sort of you know modern or, or or popular ideas? I know you've spoken about the Burkini, for example. Again, you know, two different concepts coming together into creating a new you know fashion item, for example. But what are some other things that sort of in popular culture that people can think of when when it comes to this intersection and what it can well, create? You know, so first of all, you know, you could you could look around. I, so I answer your question. What I what I really like to encourage people to do is just look around and try to step into intersection yourself because you know you're wherever you're coming from you're coming from a place of 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 of, of knowledge and experience and so when you try when you add to that you can add it in a way that is um that's obvious uh you know within sort of the within the discipline within the culture or you can try to create an unexpected connection and i mean once you start doing that on a regular basis, it gets really exciting. But of course, we can look around and we can see this play out over and over again. Um, uh, I, I'll mention uh, two, two quick examples. Um, Cemex, Mexican cement company. So while well, they sell cement, and you might wonder where the edge is in selling cement, how do you, <laughs> but they sell that cement at a, a significantly higher margin than the competitors. And uh, there are a number of reasons why, but one of them has to do how they are positioning or the, the sort of branding that cement. They've been able to get people in Mexico to think of a bag of cement as a viable wedding gift. Okay. Now, how I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to receiving it from you, France. Yeah, no doubt, married. right? I, yeah. I, I, I could grab too. So, so, so the the uh, but what happened, right, is that they started asking themselves, well, what is what is one of the first things that that uh, that a couple might do after they get married, particularly low-income couples in Mexico, well, it would be to build a house, or it may maybe make an extension to an existing house. And what is what do you need to build a house? You need cement. So they created a campaign uh, called Patrimonio Oi around this intersection of uh, cement and weddings, and. Uh, and, and this campaign really made this emotional connection between one of the most important days of your life um, and something that you really, that, that, that could help you make progress on that most important day. That's very, every time I share this example, people are like, okay, would not have uh, made that connection. Well, yes, you would if you, if you start training it and start looking at the world that way. Another favorite example of mine comes from Sweden, our country, uh, what happens when you combine the idea of ice and a hotel? You can create an ice hotel. You know, I wouldn't go to Cairns to do it, but <laughs> but uh, this idea seems obvious now, perhaps. Uh, but when Ingve, the, the founder of the ice hotel, did it, it was everything, anything but obvious, right? But it came from another unique intersection. So, so those are those are examples, and they are all over the place, and they're 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 really wonderful. Uh, reminders of the value of diversity. I think in, in the book you speak about, you know, your, your friend and the, you know, the amazing Swedish chef, Marcus Samuelsson as, as being the sort of, you know, I guess another encapsulation of, of diversity and the, the diversity of thought bringing together, you know, Swedish cuisine and then, you know, all his right. sort of immersive experiences tour, touring the world on a cruise ship. And then, you know, his, <laughs> his experiences, experiences running, a, you know, an amazing restaurant Akvavit in, in New York. And then, of course, you know, he's launched several since as well. He's uh, he's you know Swedish um, Swedish citizen, but he's he's adopted from Ethiopia, Ethiopia. I believe. Yeah, Ethiopia. Yeah. So so I'm curious, you know, like you know, I look very traditional Swedish pale male style, right? <laughs> which yeah, um, no, I think you're. <laughs> you, you, you're hitting it yeah <laughs> yeah well so you know like my, my, my dad always says you know because like both my parents are you know traditional Swedish um yeah. so I sat down and he's always said you know yes but you know there is some international international blood in our family you know we were um part of our heritage is from 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 Belgium it's the Valunena who moved oh sure and many, yeah. many hundred years ago and so I've always been curious about this and um 
So I went back and did the 23 and me sort of genetic oh, sure. testing. Yeah. And I said, and I said, Dad, you know, that 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 myth that we have Valuan blood in our family, I was that that is just a myth. We're like 97% Swedish and then a little 3% sprinkling of you know ethnic um Finnish in our in our family. Oh Finnish, yeah. That is just so so international, so multicultural. <laughs> so I mean, so so I have to ask myself, I mean, we, you know, Mark and I would love to to have you share the story of of markers but for somebody like me who's like you know pale male style you know how do how do we create this sort of you know diversity in our lives if we don't have the sort of multi-ethnic background or the multi you know international background for example or, or, or i mean like it's a it's a great question but the but the answers are are all around i mean i so you know look if you are uh we are all born with various um uh uh I guess you can call them um, uh, advantages or, or able to sort of ability to sort of look differently upon the world. Now for Marcus, um, uh, in the situation that he's in, um, adopted into Sweden, um, uh, the, the, the key point is, can one in a situation like that be able to open oneself up for different inputs, different, different as, as associations, different concepts, and through that, gain power in one's creative ability. I mean, that's really the that's that's really the question. If you're able to do that, then you're able to also make use of that power, un unleash that power. But but this is true. This is true for for anyone. You're when you go from Sweden to Australia, there are other dimensions of diversity that, that can come into play for you. Uh, that our, our our genetic code does not Fortunately, limits our creative abilities, but it does set up different uh, different expectations. So here's what I would say: uh, just quoting you, right? It's like if you go if you're going into a situation you're pale, male, and stale, <laughs> like you said. Well, how do I think actively about enhancing the diversity around me? How do I how do I think about that? Because the the challenge is that the way most humans operate is we tend to attract similar. And you know, for someone like Marcus grew up in Sweden, that's impossible. It's impossible for me grew up in Sweden to attract. Attracting similar would mean that I'm hanging out with, uh, you know, my family <laughs> and that's, that's it, right? So, so, uh, so uh, anybody that I was interacting with was somebody that was somewhat different from me. And that, that multiplies the intersectional point. Well, well, if you are in a, in a situation where you're surrounded by people similar to yourself, ask yourself, how can you increase that diversity along various dimensions? What does that mean for me? Does that mean I, does that mean I can put myself into another environment from time to time? Does that mean that I can think about uh, the circle of colleagues and networks and friends that I'm, that I'm building purposefully, intentionally, uh, making it more diverse? Uh, those are the type of actions that one can take to sort of make it more organic, to to infuse it in a way that is that that becomes um, ongoing and and sustained. Yeah, so I just, I mean, I just think of that in um, in the context. Maybe both of, I mean, again, I'm just being egotistical here, but I kind kind of cast my mind back. <laughs> yeah. When I when I lived in Stockholm, I grew up in Stockholm. I went to um, a German-speaking public school. Yeah. And, um, you know, out of a classroom of, of, of 25 people, it was, it was a selective public school. Um, but, um, you know, there were only, there were only two kids in the class that, that, that kind of looked like me, you know, the, the stereotypical Swede yeah. that, you know, people internationally kind of expect. And then everybody else had um, at least one or if not two parents who were born overseas. So everything from, you know, you know, people who'd fled to Sweden, you know, political uh, asylum or, or yeah. refugees. They were, they were also, you know, you know, the kids of entrepreneurs, etc. Incredibly mixed, sort of Incredibly United diverse. Nations. Yeah, and um, and I love that. Um, and um, you know, and you, you could still build, even though optically we all looked incredibly different on on the surface, and religiously we represented. Um, you know every belief system on on the planet, or or, or atheism, etc. Uh, you know we were also we were also diverse, and it was an, a really an amazing group of people that have all gone on to do really 
cool stuff um, I, I in, think, in, I in think their own well, rights. To the degree that one can, uh, one should look for those opportunities. It's becoming increasingly important to be able to actually have the ability to engage with, uh, with diverse groups of people. Because the, the fact is, the likelihood of you interacting with somebody that is different from yourself is going, is just increasing uh, over and over and over again. I, I'll tell you that one of the challenges is that the systems that are in place, uh, socials, like the social media systems that are in place, is kind of encouraging, encouraging, encouraging us to do the opposite. So we may be, we may find ourselves in a ever sort of narrowing uh, circle of, of of friends where the recommendations are, well, like I'm gonna give feed you with more of what you already told me that you like. And that becomes sort of a self-reinforcing uh, engine. But in reality, when we think about who we end up working with on a day-to-day -day basis at our job or or whatever, like that, that grouping is probably gonna be increasingly diverse. And so what we want is actually the ability to understand how can we be inclusive with the diversity? How can we how can we not just um, uh, get ideas from the diversity? How do we put ideas into it, right? How do we share our perspective into this uh, group or team that we're with? And it is actually becoming a true skill set. Like somebody, like, this has come up many times. What does it mean to be successful in towards the future? And, and, and one, of, one of the answers I give is the ability to understand how to quickly tap into the full power of a diverse team, of because you're like to be part of one. So how quickly can you ramp up to full power? Because that power of that diverse team is like to be higher than the homogeneous team, but not if they can't be inclusive, not if one can sort of tap into each other's uh, abilities, perspectives, ideas, networks, and so on. So that is a, that's a skill set that is increased. That's one actually that we spend a lot of time helping teams to understand to, to upskill on. Yeah, because of course, that, you know, that's that's one of the challenges, right? I mean, people kind of describe group dynamics or new groups of people coming together and it's the, you know, the forming, the storming, the norming, performing yeah. and, 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 and all of that. I mean, how, how do you how do you take teams that maybe have vastly different backgrounds, you know, cognitive abilities, some might be more left brain, some more right yeah. brain, uh, different ages, you know, the optics might be different, etc. How, how do you move them through to this, you know, in, innovation space or the, you know, this, this sweet spot where they can, you know, create a, a new renaissance of innovation inside their organizations? So we actually have a lot of information and data on how to do this well. We work with over 4,000 teams around the world at this point within our company. And through that, we've been able to create a platform that is leveraging this data. That is, so it's, it's just, it's really fantastic to see. And I would, I would say that there are a couple of things that one can, um, one can do um, uh, within the time zone we have, we have here. Um, the, the first one is um, recognize that there is power in the diversity. In other words, like you're, you're getting the team itself to truly um, embrace the fact that one is different. So, so that means that one is over, one is not looking at it as a barrier, one is not looking at it as a, as a as an enhancer, uh, that shifts the shift that tends to shift the dynamic and the energy of that team. Like, okay, how do we how do we play into each other's uh, differences rather than uh, than use them to 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 divide uh, ourselves? The second thing is um, a move that I I think of as the calling it the the innovative heartbeat. Now, <clears throat> let's just establish a, a baseline. You know, if I ask people, well, what do you think is required of, say, a leader of a diverse team? Like, how do they need to be, how do they need to act? And I get answers like, well, you have to be, uh, you have to be, you know, uh, 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 tolerant and respectful and open-minded and so on. And, and that's all true. But what's interesting is the opposite is also true, just at different times. Because here's the thing, a homogeneous team, usually the team can sense when they have arrived at a place that the team likes. Like you can get that feel like, are we done? Are we done, done talking about this? Are we, are we good? Yeah, yeah, we good. And you're like, okay, let's move on. What happens in a diverse team, a well-functioning diverse team? Well, they can keep on talking forever. There's always another opinion. There's always another idea. So actually 
a leader of a diversity has to be able to be both encourage openness, uh, 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 inclusion, but then they have to be able to shut that conversation down to arrive at a decision. And, and that means closing, out, closing it off, closing off discussion so you can execute. And if you think about this, this means that you have three steps. One is you expand the discussion points and then you close it off and then you execute and then you expand again, close it off, execute, just like a heartbeat, boom, boom. Boom, boom, right? This is how it plays out. And knowing kind of what phase you're in is very helpful for a team because that means that, look, I'm contributing. My idea didn't get ultimately get to be, uh, get play, but that's okay. Because next time around, we're doing, going through this process again. So, that type of structure, that type of way of thinking about uh, engaging uh, a diverse team is, is, is very powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think of another example of this diversity, right? And I, and I think of the, you know, the space of entrepreneurship where, where both you and I um, spend a lot of our time. Yes. Um, I'm a member of a, of a global organization. I'm sure you've done some presentations for a consulting for called uh, the Entrepreneurs Organization. So I'm part of the, the Sydney chapter. And in my group, um, you know, certainly I'm the only one that has a consultancy, a sort of a thought leadership practice, you know, doing futurist stuff and brand collaborations. Then we've got, and I'm sweet, you know, Swedish Australian. Then we've got a wonderful, uh, wonderful lady who's Austrian, but Palestinian background who runs a, a great e-commerce platform, about 300 staff global. We've got a furniture manufacturer um, who also has a team of about a hundred. We've got, um, a packaging company we've got um, a, 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 like an uber style platform for cleaners anyway on and on it goes and and only two of the people are actually born in australia in our four right eight. <laughs> we, we, we all buy the constitution of eo have to come from non-competing fields but of sure. course it makes, makes for a fascinating conversation whenever we're you know brainstorming or innovating or strategizing or experience sharing uh, in that forum, which uh, I think of it's amazing, as, as isn't it? Of, mm. So it becomes this little mastermind, of course, of again, you know, different belief systems, values, and experiences that sort of come to, I guess, what EO has created in a sense, which is the meditation intersection. Yeah, yeah, cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, Black Lives Matter obviously is 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 become a movement of, of, of social justice, and, you know, probably right. many 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 years overdue in, in some way, uh, shape or form. Um, you know, the, the, there's the the social sort of you know equity conversation here. Yeah. But from what I'm hearing from you in this conversation as well is that most likely the data and and the research shows that there's also a penalty, uh, a revenue penalty for organisations that just haven't understood yet that they need to be diverse my god like so uh, yes and um and so let me just quickly address the the justice and equity piece because i because because when you start thinking about what then um uh, who's driving that dialogue okay where, where that dialogue is sitting what's interesting is this something has happened i call it the great inversion in this if you go back a number of years, governments were driving this dialogue. They would set laws and they would expect companies to operate when you can't discriminate. Okay, I won't discriminate. What's happening now? Governments are really lagging in this and corporations seems to be the one that are driving. Certainly this is true in the United States. You've seen this play out globally. Why is that? Why are corporations sort of pushing the idea of diversity and inclusion and actually now taking more of a public stance when it comes to equity. Like what happened? I got this question from a CEO. Uh, uh, he's actually, when did I have to become a politician? I thought it was like a little while ago, it's all about profit and loss and all this stuff. And now I like, I'm well, and I said, look, the world is changing. And the expectations of companies and organizations broadly is that they are playing a role in this because, because other parts of society are, are, are failing at it. But why is it still? So the question still goes back, why? Because ultimately, 
for companies, they are realizing that they need access to diverse talents. This is, I mean, it, it is a slow realization and they don't have worked out the mechanics of necessarily why or what, but it is, it is clear that that is going on. So it is happening at two levels. I'll add one. So the one, one level that have we talked about, innovation, performance, growth, revenue, like without a doubt, you've seen this. And, I, and I'll just mention um, one example uh, that I can talk about because it's so obvious. We worked with uh, Disney for many, many years. Uh, and, and if you think about how that company thinks about diversity, uh, we can talk about this global because the brand is so global. Like, like it's movies, um, it's TV shows, it's products. I mean, this is just basically way ahead of, of everybody else. And it's not an accident. I mean, in fact, I've been a part of that journey for them. Um, because they're understanding how this impacts revenue, they understand how this impacts share, all the price and so on. Uh, but there's another piece to this as well, which we haven't talked about, was I think it's worthwhile mentioning. And that is there is a hidden race going on right now. Some have picked up on it, but the race is really about how do we even get access to diverse talent to begin with? And here's a interesting truth. Diverse talent are attracted to diverse talent. And what does that mean if you really examine that, that fact? It is that those companies that are ahead of diverse talent have actually a increasing cumulative advantage. They have an easier time getting more diverse talent, which means they have an easier time getting more diverse talent. And those that are behind will increasingly struggle. Because if I can get to choose, if I can get to choose to go to a company that has let's say no women or no people of color or any other domestic diversity at the, at the top leadership areas, or I can go to one that does and everything else is equal, everything else being equal, which one would I go to if I am of sort of a diverse background myself? I can tell you what the answer is. It's gonna to be to this company because why would I do this to myself to go over here? Like, why would I take that chance given the, the, the information that the market is providing me? This is a subtle race that is happening right now and companies are not really aware of it, but positioning, being, positioning is happening, is playing out. And I, I can tell you companies that are aware of it are making quick strides to entrench their position. Netflix is, is the only company I've seen that has really seriously figured out what Disney's doing and saying, we're gonna do that uh, maybe even, even more and faster. Um, so in, in three years, they basically doubled their, uh, for instance, uh, their, 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 their people of color uh, uh, talent pool. And what is, what is that helping them do? Make it easier to just keep on attracting diverse talent. So two, two things, right? The innovation, shareholder performance, all of this that we have talked about now quite a bit, but there's this other piece as well. Yeah, fascinating. I, I, I think, you know, there was some research from, from BCG that also showed um, in, in Europe that you know, more diverse teams uh, tend to, well, there's a correlation between, the, you know, the greater the diversity inside of your organization. Oh, yeah. The more, the more revenue from new yes. prices oh, of the last three years. I mean, there's, there's studies galore of this, right? Oh, like the studies are everywhere. If, if studies would convince companies to think differently about this, this would be game over already. That's not what makes people shift. I don't believe that people shift their behaviors based on academic studies. They shift the behaviors on the following. Um, uh, basically, uh, here's how people think about how to act. If I, um, I will do more things that I have seen work in the past, and I will do less of those things that I've seen not work. Like literally you will say, oh, that didn't work. I'll never do that again. I mean, all of us have said exactly that sentence. Uh, and then we see something that really works, we're like, well, I'm, I'm gonna lean in on that more. This is a very simple heuristic of how to think about leadership behavior. And so what does it mean? It means that what we work with our, our customers to do is we create a cycle where we're introducing a new behavior that is inclusive, inclusive behavior. And then we're doing that on an urgent or relevant business matter so they can see 
the positive business outcome of that within a matter of weeks as a team. And then you can sort of repeat the cycle until you have enough intuitive data as a team or as a leader where you say, I totally get it. We just boosted, we had a team that uh, developed $30 million in additional revenue streams by, by tapping into inclusive behaviors. But once you've done that, you're like, oh, well, okay, let me do that again. And that's what's gonna drive it. The academic studies show it, prove it, without a doubt. But that doesn't drive changes in behavior. So, so then if, if we think about, you know, you, you alluded to the world of, of, of digital and social media and, you know, the, the yeah. likes of Netflix being really good at, you know, offering us more, more services, for example, that, you know, people who are like us tend to enjoy. And so there could be like this kind of echo chamber, right, or, of, of actually just cementing and augmenting what we already know, um, which is also a challenge when it comes to, to recruitment, right? People tend to really? kind of recruit in their own image, as it were. Oh. Now, increasingly, there's, you know, artificial intelligence and new technologies to help with, with screening. And even some AIs are sort of claiming to, to maybe remove some of our inherent biases. Are you seeing any progress there in terms of driving diversity and inclusion? I, I got to tell you, I know there's a lot of talk about that. I, I, right now, what I see is the opposite. Because if you think about what is really happening with AI driving. So AI can remove bias, right? That's what the claim is. And it really comes down to that. That claim happens in the early phase of recruiting. Because when you get to the later phases, you actually do have to meet face-to-face -face or screen-to-screen. -screen. Like that's going to eventually happen. And now you're reintroducing some of that bias that AI is, is saying that it's going to uh, get rid of. But here's the, here's the other thing, though. So what happens is that companies train their, um, you know, um, engines, recruiting engines on, well, what would make a really great employee? Well, guess what? We have data on that. Ah, historic data. <laughs> historic data, which is biased, like, which is already skewed. So what is happening is that you're reinforcing the historic data in an organization. And all, all this really, this is just the algorithm saying, well, who, who performed the best? Oh, look at this. I mean, let's just look at 10 years worth of data. So if anything, if you're, what you're at risk of doing is simply doing what you just talked about, tightening that, tightening that circle, making it less and less diverse because you're reinforcing past success. But what do organizations need? They don't need the constellations to help them be successful in the past. They need constellations that are gonna help them be successful in the future. Well, that's much harder to predict. And I have yet to see an AI that will say, Oh, I, I got the business model for you over the next 10 years. That's not really the, and if there was, it would already be arbitraged out because everybody would get the AI and now we would still be at, back at blank, at, at, at space zero. So, so the, the inherent nature of innovation, this is my second book is about, is that uncertainty and the unexpected and randomness is actually increasing in our world as our, as our ability to share information and data enhances. It actually means it becomes um, less and less of a differentiator, unless only you have exclusive access to the data, then yes, maybe. But if it's data that is that you can share and you can sort of work off of it, like this is becoming an issue. <laughs> so, so bottom, yeah, anyway, that's the. Yeah, I mean, it makes, makes me think of, uh, of, you know, we, we, we always tend to sort of overhype the amount of change that happens in a year and underhype the amount of changes that happen over a decade. That's right. Jeff, Jeff Bezos um, said something to, to the tune, and I'm paraphrasing now that, you know, he goes, you know, people love, you know, talking about change and new business models and innovation, entrepreneurship, startups, etc. He's like, but he's like, I actually get attuned to what's not going to change over the next 10 years, because you can build a business model around that. Um, any, any, any thoughts on that? Do you think that that's sort of well, ironic, given it's a database company that. or? <laughs> yeah, Basis does have an opinion on that. I mean, what he says is not going to change is that people are going to want things faster and cheaper. Like if I know those two things, that tells me all I need to know. Of course, it's not that simple because uh, this is actually fairly widely understood. Uh, what may be not as in deeply entrenched is just how deep that value set goes within, within Amazon, right? But, uh, but most people are trying to figure out how to do things faster and cheaper. 
It's not like this is what was Amazon's uh, real advantage in, 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 um, in my opinion, isn't just that they're encouraging people to innovate and so on. I think they have many of those things down, right? Experimentation happens a lot there and so on. But the market is giving them a lot of runway to, to, to take an idea and run with it for a very, very long time. Um, uh, you know, uh, for many ideas at a loss for, for a very long time. That's a huge built-in advantage that it comes from this cumulative effect the companies have, right? I, I believe that for many companies, um, uh, success comes from an initial piece, something initially that can essentially be called unexpected or random. Like in retrospect, it seems like it was stone obvious, but when you look into it, when it happened, it wasn't necessarily at all that way. And depending on how the company is structured, they can reinforce this advantage either through scale or through network effects, like say Facebook, um, uh, or through uh, market dynamics, where where a, a market is willing to give a company the ability to 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 run with an idea and scale it up for a very long time. Tesla is the same way. The market has decided that you know, hey, uh, Elon, we will we will actually give you a um, we will we will give you a bye week, right? We will give you we will give you the ability to to keep running with this for quite some time far more than we would get any other company, right? So, so, so you will have the opportunity to test and, uh, and, and explore this. Uh, and that's a huge cumulative advantage. It can go away for companies. Once that disappears, they fall back down to, they just need to come up with the next, next good idea. And that's actually quite difficult. Yeah. I mean, th there's, you know, you, you talked about diversity, inclusion, the intersection, you know, there's obviously organizations that have staff that um, and, and a talent pool that are quite homogeneous, right? And then there's, and they, and they obviously need to evolve. There's also organizations, like I think of, you know, one of our clients at Lego, for example, uh, where Tormod Askelson said that, you know, when it comes to open innovation and inviting new ideas yeah. in, um, he said 99.9% .9 of the smartest people in the world don't work for Lego. But at the same time, they through, you know, through user groups and through various APIs and, and collaborations with, you know, some of the big content houses, et cetera, you know, they're inviting ideas in and they, they realize, for example, that, you know, the kid alt market or right. Google this carefully toys for adults is a huge uh, growth market, for example. And so they innovate around ideas right. that are coming in. The likes of Deloitte have, you know, Deloitte Pixel and of course crowdsourcing is this, you know, concept that's been around for a long time now. Do you see those sort of open innovation collaborations happening now more in the virtual world, firstly? And then secondly, what does remote work mean in terms of creativity? Is it an enhancer or is it a detractor when it comes to creativity? So, wow, these are two separate questions. Let me address the first one, which has to do with... Uh, the direction we're heading into, let's call it community economy or networking economy or whatnot. But I do think we're going to see a, a, an increasing reliance on this. <clears throat> uh, it will come in fits and starts as we begin to understand how to capture the power of these things. But, but there's no doubt that um, that uh, um, the the if 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 you imagine that a we have a sphere and this sphere represents all knowledge and resources and assets and so on in, on the planet. And it's expanding at an increasing rate. And if you imagine a tiny, tiny dot on that sphere, on the surface of that sphere, then that dot represents your knowledge. Okay, so, so, you know, you're, so how do you get access to this whole thing? Like how? And increasingly, the only way to answer that question, I mean, it's not that you just read a book or you follow a Twitter stream. I mean, this gives you maybe a, like a, a quick sense on some things. We can even give you a false sense. You might actually think that you know a lot about something where there's just tremendous amount of uh, uh, knowledge and, 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 and insight developed in, in all over the world, right? You know, I, I'll give you an example of a, of a stat that I, that I like to give. I don't know if it's true of 2020 or, or 2019. I believe it was true for 2018. But seven of the 10 fastest growing countries on the planet are in Africa. What? No, that can't be true. Well, this is not a complicated thing to sort of dig into. 
But that doesn't mean that you have access, that you're able to use that knowledge. So you understand what this means, but like, well, what does it mean to engage and think about Nigeria as a, as a, as a, as a, as a place to sort of engage in terms of thinking about innovation and so on? Um, so so, so th this knowledge is there. Even if it's right at your fingertips, you don't necessarily even know how to make use of it and process it. Who does? Well, these type of communities, these type of networks that exist around the world, right? So I believe you're going to see an increase of those. I believe you're going to see platforms develop that helps us tap into those. And if, even if you think about how products are developed today, we, as we headed into uh, going from a consulting firm really to, to a, into a product company, uh, now you start looking at the existing platforms. You, uh, no-code platforms, low-code platforms that, that you can sort of tap into, work with, um, uh, they're exploding. So now it's not just a matter of knowing which ones they are. You may have to tap into community to figure out which ones of these platforms you should be working with, right? So, so it's just it's just happening exponentially. So that's the answer to that question. I I, I believe we're gonna uh, see more and more of it, and I believe we're gonna see more and more structured models come out of this. The second question you're asking, uh, which what was it again? My God, it was good. So a virtual teams, are they going to be an enhancer of yeah. innovation and creativity or will they detract from our ability to, to innovate? So I, I, I'll tell you, um, it's a complicated question. I think they can be enhancer of certain creativity. Certainly, if we, de if we define innovation as a combination of things, like for instance, what it means to reach out and work with somebody different, well, doing so virtually makes that easier. Uh, it is also true that it can speed up that interaction. I, I think about pre-COVID, but for instance, we could in an email thread decide four or five people that we should meet and figure this out. And then people start trying to figure out how to do so physically. Oh, we couldn't do it this week. It's hard to even remember that this, that this was an error. Like, oh, let's 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 try to do it next week. I can't do it. It could take three weeks before everybody gets into the same room together or more. But now it's like, well, tomorrow? And like and you can all get together because everybody has 45 minutes to give at the exact right time slot. And so think about what that does to speed. And that, so so innovation to some degree clearly connecting with people, different people is is a core piece. Speed is a core piece. But what is missing? So one thing that is missing, uh, I mentioned two things. Uh, one is the, the serendipitous. So, so even in the best of circumstances, right? I know this has been widely talked about, but it's still worthwhile to point this out. In, even, in the, even in the best of circumstances, it is very hard to recreate this serendipitous conversation. Let's say that these five people do meet on location and we problem solve, we work on something for an hour, and then people go, oh, let's take a bio break. And you head, head to the restroom with, uh, with somebody who's part of the team, let's say, and you're walking towards the restroom and you're chit-chatting about something. And it's an idea. And then you go to the restroom, maybe different restrooms, and you come back out. Oh, you know, I had a thought. And this is like, this happens all the freaking time. I mean, all the time. It's, sometimes this is where the magic happens. You come into the team and say, hey, we just... We just thought of something here, and and this you infuses into the discussion. It's lost. That that is lost virtually, right? And so some of these great grand insights that happen in this way, and 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 people try to emulate it in various. It's not the same, and uh, so that's one. And the um, the other piece where there is a um, where is the challenge is that particularly in an organizational framework, culture encourages innovation. And let me tell you what's taking a beating during this time, culture. Like I didn't hear, let me tell you, when I talked to CEOs back in last year, they didn't really talk much about the hit to culture. Mostly it was amazement that this whole, this whole thing actually worked. Like, my God, like we're more productive than ever. Like what happened? I'm not having those conversations now. That's yesterday's news. Everybody knows that. What is the conversation that I'm having now? The incredible hit that their company's culture is taking work virtually. All these things that 
was able to create a corporate culture by working in the same space has kind of vanished. New employees that join companies that have never met somebody physically, they may, they may actually, <clears throat> when, when you ask old and new employees to describe the culture of a company, they may describe it completely differently if they were hired post COVID basically. So to answer your question, it's complicated. Um, I think that certain aspects of criteria innovation are enhanced, but others are, are destroyed or, 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 or let's call it lessened. So, so it's not the same as saying net-net is, is, is the same. It's net-net certain types of creativity are enhanced and others is, 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 are lessened. And so that's kind of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, one of our clients said recently, and he's, he's a you know, fairly big name CEO in, in Australia, and he said, I've never been more productive than during you know, this future of work experience. Yeah. But he goes, I'm not sure I'm a better leader and that I'm more emotionally intelligent as a result. And I, and I think that sort of, you know, kind of captures the, the, the ethos or, you know, no so some of the things you touch upon in, in that particular, particular example. No doubt. Yeah. Right. Now we're nearly into, into the end zone here, but I, I am curious just to see what's going on both at the, at the Medici group and also what your thoughts on, um, are uh, when it comes to technology, artificial intelligence, I know you guys are, uh, are innovating in this space. And, you know, it's, it's often said that, you know, technology, AI can help us do less of the, the menial, the routine and, and, and the mundane and focus more on the meaningful and, and the humane part of which I would say is, is innovation and, and creating, nurturing culture, etc. Have you got any thoughts on how technologies helping do more of the you know say the left brain work to a degree right and so sciences technology engineering and maths and helps liberate maybe some of my our right brain creativity innovation entrepreneurship and well EQ, you for know example. um i guess i would say that i i so i don't i don't necessarily see the distinction in that particular way like a lot of creativity can of course happen in, in math and engineering and so on i think that what you're getting at is that certain things it just seems to be easier to codify, algorithmatize than other things. And I do think that that is true. That said, people are trying to really figure out how to, how to do that to everything. In, in, our, in, our, in our company, uh, we've gone in the direction of, of uh, trying to figure out how do we take a team and how, we, how do we take that team and make it amazing? Like amazing. How do we make it more innovative? How do we make it faster? How do we make it more inclusive? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So along multiple dimensions. And it is fair to say that at this point we have definitely been able to codify many elements of that. And that means that we're also able to add technology to it. We're not at a place we believe where you could just take a person out of leading a team in this way. Did you see I just did like this one question? It's not involved I am in this. Okay, so but we are. We are at a place where you can create hybrid types of solutions where people can go can become effectively superstars uh, in in driving this. So so we were able to sort of see people become more innovative, uh, enabling teams to be more innovative, uh, not because they have more and more years of work experience, but because we're aiding them through process and technology to actually become, um, uh, be able to understand how do I use inclusion to drive innovation? How do I use diversity to do it? And so we constructed this whole system based on the combination of, of moves that you can sort of impart on a team and those moves driving outcomes. And it's very exciting because I, what this really means is that we're, what we're really creating is a, is, is a way of disrupting um, uh, uh, services or in a particular type of services. But as I said, in order to get to this place, one has to be able to view it in a hybrid way. It is not just a pure tech platform solution. I think anybody that's sort of going that direction is going to fail. But if it's only purely human, I think one is going to be missing the boat. 
So we're, we're stepping into another intersection. Uh, and, and that I think is exciting. I mean, I think I'm, I'm a huge believer in, in, in the ability of artificial intelligence to sort of augment uh, human intelligence. And, uh, you know, people often get fearful of technological unemployment and, and the displacement of humans courtesy of, of technology, machine learning. And I think history is one of both economic displacement partly, but also there's this huge ability such as, you know, the humble ATM, for example, didn't teach humans how to dispense cash and take cash faster but it also enabled bank tellers to actually evolve in their ability to do relationship or advisory based banking, for example. So I'm a huge believer in that. The other thing here is I think that there's a, and you touch upon this idea of creative abrasion, which is how humans make other humans better. And there was some research out of University of Oklahoma. Uh, and I think it was quite pertinent given the, the recent elections in, in the United States. And, it, and they did some research there with uh, people who tended to vote Republican and Democrat. And um, those had to go in and make a business pitch. And one research group were told that they were going to present to like-minded people who voted similarly. Interesting. And then the other group had to go in and and, and pitch to a group that they were told were either, you know, you know, of the opposite Opposite, uh, political beliefs. And they found that the group who had to go and pitch to the enemy were um, they created better business models and they worked harder and smarter on their pitches than those who, you know, preach to the converted. Um, Is that perhaps, you know, a lesson for all of us when it comes to this intersection and and diversity? You know, I think that the, the idea of what it means to be curious, what it means to stretch yourself, what it means to push new boundaries, um, almost by definition involves difference, right? So, so um, it is inherent that if you step into, into diversity, if you step into intersections, whether it's manufactured like in this study or not, um, you are stepping into a place where you can't simply rely on your established playbook. Like by definition, I'm stepping into a new space or I might be able to create a new space, but whatever I have back here, I need something else. I need something different. Uh, I also think that um, frankly, uh, diversity viewed from the right perspective. So, So diversity amplifies amplifies our, our, um, our intent. What do I mean by that? Diversity brings out the best in us. It can also bring out the worst. This is why, like, it's it, it just the variance, right? It just amplifies that, but, but it, brings out the, it brings out the best. In us. It can bring out the worst. What is, what is the role of society? What is the role of uh, our, our our friends and colleagues. What is the role of our organizations? Well, it is to bring out the best in us. That really is what it is. So it should encourage diversity. It should encourage how to make use of that diversity, how to bring it into our into our lives. And I, and I'll say this: if you look at the arrow of history, the arrow of history is that arrow is undisputable. The world is more inclusive, like it's more inclusive today than it was a thousand years ago, okay? Um, 500 years ago, a hundred years ago. Are there moments of like reversions and eddies in this? Yes, but in the big picture, we know where we're heading. This world is beginning increasingly diverse and it will be increasingly inclusive. There's just no doubt in my mind. We may be struggling in the moment, but this gives me great hope. And and here's the thing for people to think about. If if we assumed that what we want to play into is the opposite of inclusion, exclusion, if we assumed that we wanted to play into the opposite of diversity, homogeneity, take and draw a little point on a piece of paper and then extrapolate that future out. And ask yourself, what happens 
if we do that for years. We don't want difference. We don't want to be inclusive. Like when you, when you extrapolate that out, you basically see that the world stops. It will just grind to a complete halt. Yeah, fascinating. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you're, you're, you're a parent. Um, you've got these, you, you know, you know, multiple nationalities at, at home. You've got, you know, Swedish, American, um, Filipino, African American, Cher Cherokee background, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and my, my, my wife is Filipina. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious when you look at the nations of, of Sweden and America, I mean, in Sweden at the moment, you know, the, the, the Sweden Democrats have 20, 25% of the vote. Some people see Sweden as a sort of a, a failed state almost of, of yeah. diversity and inclusion. When, you, when you're talking to your kids, do you, and, and maybe even to the Swedish government, you know, how do you think, yeah. Yeah, how, how do you think nations can do this better? And what advice do you give to your kids about which talent clusters that you know, they should seek out for their futures? Yeah. For all the for all the crap that the United States gets in this, I, I think that they are, in a, generally speaking, in a very advanced state in how to think about these things. Um, my God, is there insanity that's going on in this country? Uh, racial injustice, um, uh, but you know what? It's also increasingly highlighted. There's actions taken. There are people are reacting. People are de wanting and demanding action, right? I see other countries where you have this and it's like, well, you're not really getting the same type of reaction here. Um, uh, so, so again, hopeful that things are getting better, okay? That's really the arrow of history. Yes, it will have reversals, et cetera, but long-term I believe it's getting better. We play, our company plays a role in doing that and making that happen. So I, I am hopeful of that. Sweden, if we talk about that specifically, I think that they missed one half of this equation. Um, well, I'll talk about diversity and inclusion. There's equity as well. Actually, they missed two thirds of the equation. Yeah, they've actually, Sweden is far more diverse today than it was when I grew up in it. I mean, every dimension, okay. But having diversity is not enough. If you not if you don't have inclusion of this diversity, you're kind of missing the boat. And what Sweden has managed to do, which has created all these tensions, is that it was as if one thought, well, it's enough to have the diversity. The rest will sort itself out. But I know that most people in Sweden that I know, if I think about who they hang out with on midsummer. I think about what they like. If I look at their their social, it is not that diverse of a group. It just isn't. It, it so so there's a there's a piece missing that has been missing. And so what is it that I believe Sweden should focus on? It is inclusion. Now Sweden is called integration, but 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 inclusion is really the 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 the, the key. Including. Like we, how do we include, how do we do that in a way that is not just a, in terms of who, who can be uh, on one, what governmental program or whatnot. It is about how can I be inclusive in, in, in the, in our workforce? How can I be inclusive in the people that I hang out with? This is the piece that has been missing in Sweden's equation. And through that comes the notion of equity as well. And so, so you ask, what does this mean for 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 the family, for our daughters? Um, I got to tell you that intuition for them is at a completely different level. I mean, it's just mind blowing, right? I'm listening to the two of them talking, and I mean, they are talking about concepts that didn't exist when I grew up, when I was at their age, right? They're talking about their friends and 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 are, and 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 are there with their with their friends how they are defining themselves. Uh, on a gender basis, are they defining themselves on a racial basis, are they defining themselves on, on a whole bunch of dimensions? And it's just, it's just intuitive and natural. So, so already, they by, by doing so, they, they, they allow themselves to be more inclusive as a, just a matter of course. 
but whenever I feel I have the opportunity to give advice, which I probably don't listen to, um, uh, it, it, it really comes down to seek out diversity, actively seek it out, seek it. The world gives you so many opportunities to do it. Seek it, make use of it, understand it, get comfortable with it, contribute to it. I think that's a, a wonderful space to to kind of start wrapping things up. It's been a it's been a fantastic uh, innings, Franz. Thank you very much for your for your generous time sharing and and going on this sort of tour de force over the last five hundred years of innovation from the Medici's uh, back in Renaissance Florence all the way through to Swedish uh, politics and, uh, and organizational change and you know, technology, artificial intelligence, and the cool things you guys are doing for both, you know, big corporations and, and, and organizations, but also, I'd like to say also humanity and, and helping liberate um, creativity and in, innovation as well. So thank, thank you, you very much for, uh, for, hang, for hanging out on the second renaissance. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. And I think we covered a lot of ground. This was a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in the future in Sydney or in the digital world or in uh, New York or stateside or in Lierum or Stockholm, wherever it happens to be. Absolutely. <laughs>